0: Hello friends, I'm your host, Chris Thrall, I'm a former Royal Marines Commando, I've adventured, for better and sometimes worse, across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt Podcast. Friends who haven't met us before, I'm Chris Thrall, I'm a former Royal Marines Commando turned author. Uh, adventurer, I do a bit of life coaching, um, this kind of thing, and obviously now I'm a, pod, a very bad podcast host. And and it's my great delight to welcome back not just to the podcast but to the live chat, Duncan Faulkner. Duncan is a former SBS Frogman. Um, that might be a term that surprises some of you, but that's the that's the kind of. In-house term, or at least it was when I was in the Royal Marines. So the Special Boat Service is the uh, elite of the elite, and Duncan is now a very successful author, and he has an incredible history. Um, and he's here to tell us a story about a gun. I think we'll ju- if we just refer to it as a, as a gun, Duncan, we might <laughs> we might um, we might get away of it, but. Before we do do you want to just tell us a bit about what you did after the SBS uh,
1: after the SBS I um, well I went to Hollywood for uh, about 13 years uh, well actually immediately after I um, I joined this very private um, boutique um, security organization um, where we did some very interesting jobs um, I, I, i'm I'm writing a new book. Uh, uh, it's a part two of um, First into Action. Now that I've lived the second half of my life, almost, and uh, well, hopefully uh, not quite, but um, but uh, uh, and so I'm going to talk about it in that. But I had a, a year or so of some really fun adventures. Um, for instance, I was asked to go to a foreign country on my own and turn 60. Policeman into an anti-terrorist unit in three months which was interesting um did uh, quite a few sort of private jobs and then i um ended up um, going to uh the states los angeles i was on my way to south america to get involved in kidnap and ransom in those days it was um, a former sas run sort of business um they 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 ruled the world market in that. They created the concept of negotiating um, uh, hostage uh, situations, kidnapped and ransom situation, basically based around trying to um, uh, rescue the hostages, uh, get the money back and, and whack the bad guys. There was all sorts of bonuses running around for that sort of thing. And while I was sitting in Los Angeles waiting to jump down into Mexico and Colombia um uh i ended up writing a screenplay uh, it's a complicated story as to how i ended up doing that but um but uh, warner brothers bought it um joel silver no less i don't know if anyone's ever heard of joel silver but he was famous for lethal weapon and predator and commando um uh really great action producer and um um Well, put it this way, I I sold the screenplay for enough to buy an apartment in uh, Santa Monica. Unfortunately, I wasn't smart enough to actually buy the apartment. Um, Had I, I'd probably be sitting back on the beach there now enjoying myself um, without having to have worked as hard as I have. But um, dumb as I am, I didn't buy the apartment, Um, got involved in, in, in all of that. Um, Ended up uh, writing a TV show, uh, which ran for five years, uh, uh, did lots of movies, moved to Malibu, lived um, uh, overlooking the Pacific Ocean, and then uh, 13 years later left Uh, completely penniless. It was fantastic. I just had had enough money to buy a a bun and an apple in in a local supermarket, uh, from rags to riches to rags. And... um, Came back to the UK. Thought, right, what shall we do now? Uh, because I'm that sort of person, um, not particularly interested in money, only interested in adventures. And um, and then the twin towers sadly um, went down, and um, and that whole um, uh, war broke out in the east, uh, uh, beginning with uh, Afghanistan, and then spreading. Actually, it really began, if you like, uh, for me in um, in in Israel and. Palestine, um, and there I spread to Afghanistan. I spent many, many months there, and then I lived in Baghdad, uh, uh, well, all over Iraq for about um, on and off for of 10 years. Um, and uh, always working around the world, I started working for um, media organizations. I started to take um, prime uh, journalist correspondents into um, areas which they wouldn't normally, probably survive uh, on their own. Um, CNN was a big client, um, had a great many decade plus with them, um, blown up, shot at, fantastic adventures, running for my life, talking my way out of death squads, um, <clears throat> but uh, yeah, it was a great time, and then I uh, I basically got into crisis management after that because uh, I got blown up far too many times, and, um, and had a few more adventures in that, uh, rescuing 190 souls from northern Iraq um, for a large um, UAE Dubai- based
0: airline <clears throat> yeah so so that was pretty much it my gosh and uh, some people live a quiet life <laughs> it, it, it was busy
1: but um, but the gun
0: Chris yes let's when when we spoke last you had mentioned and I remember from our chat, you said when you were in the Special Forces, you were flying in a helicopter over a lot in Northern Ireland one day and you looked down and lo and behold, there's an aircraft under the water. Was, have I got that bit right? Yes. Well, yeah, pretty much. Yes. I, um,
1: I What I've done here is I've actually um, I've, I've, I've organized some pictures. Does that come up? Okay. Can you see uh, Loch Nay behind me? yes my background. uh well anyway um i was um so let's go back to this picture actually i'm going to move out i'm going to be like the weatherman, you know i don't know where these pictures are but i'm going to get out of the way but that's me in a in a helicopter uh, um a linksman, uh during my days as uh, an undercover operator in northern ireland and um we used to um do a lot of surveillance and stuff from the air and um, and stuff like that and uh so i was Coming, I was flying over. So let's go back to Loch Ness. See, this is, this is we've got all the mod cons in this interview. I'm telling you. <laughs> and so um, I'm, I'm going to be like the weatherman there because I don't know where my finger is. But I was flying sort of across Loch Nay, coming down sort of to here. Right, I'm going to move over here. And and if can you see this lump, this circle here? This this is um, uh, uh, a small lock. And wait a minute, I'm going to. Uh, and that's it. It's called Portmore Lock and um i was flying over that and then we go over this way because round about there this is a google um google maps picture and this is a clues to as to why i'm i actually found out where this uh, uh, uh gun actually ended up but that's portmore lock anyway so i'm flying over it and i i'm going to show you another picture now so here's this picture here and i'm sorry about the mess over there um these this picture was in storage for 20 30 years and when i dug it out uh it got a bit rotten on that side but that's portmore lock and as i was flying I, you see that little sort of like thing there is that the loch ness uh monster that that's not the loch ness monster but and it's not the portmore lock, uh, monster either that's a um a, a, a fighter aircraft from World War Two, and I, and I didn't know that then. And um, and I asked the, heli- the pilot, I said, um, "Could you just pop over that?" And um, and so we f- we flew down, and I've got another picture here. Um, and I I took that again, again on this side. I'm afraid all that rubbish there is um, is the damp that's destroyed the picture. But I saw this. It just looks like an aircraft, doesn't it? You know, it's, uh, this Portmore lock is about a kilometre, going back to the lock. It's about a kilometre across, but it's about four foot deep, even in the middle. It's just silt. And um, so having um seen this picture, so I went back to, uh, we landed, and I went back to to um, my base there, and I told the lads that, you know, I, did, I actually developed this this film in the dark room and um and we all sat around the bar looking at it and i said so let's go and have a look at it and so um we took an afternoon off and a bunch of uh bunch of us got this rubber dinky i, I remember it was red and yellow we, i think i think one of the guys nicked it from some kiddie shop or something uh, or some kiddies and in, in, in um in a camp or something we blew this thing up we we went um so going back to that picture, we went and found a road that took us to the uh, Portmore Lock, um, and then we parked up, walked to the, to, to the water, blew, blew this boat up, and we paddled out to this aircraft. And sure enough, it was a fighter aircraft. And what was even more interesting was it had four machine guns um, still in it, but all the radios were gone and um, the ammunition was gone. And um so we brought some tools with us just in case and um and I basically unbolted uh uh one of the guns and um and took it with me. Um and and left it there. Now, as far as we were concerned, this plane was rotting in Portman Port and Lock. I mean, who knows how long it more is gonna last and uh um so it wasn't as if we, we were nicking anything or you know, or, or, or wrecking anything, as far as we were concerned, it was just a gizzit You know, a bootneck. You know, sort of like, oh look, it's, it's shiny. Let's take it home. And uh, it is bolted down, but that's why bootnecks carry adjustable wrenches um, along with their equipment for things that are bolted down. And um, and anyway, I took this home, and um, I remember um, when I finally finished my tour of uh, Northern Ireland. Um, you're allowed to drive your car home um and um uh, your civi car because it, it it's it, it comes with you you know more or less and so it's no good and you take it back and i landed in liverpool and uh, and i had this gun in the boot and uh, but what what i didn't know or realize or even think about because the business that we we're in we had no idea about certain things but this was an illegal weapon because even though it was uh, been sat in this uh, this lake for 30 40 years it was still um, it was still a weapon and it, um, in fact um, it, you could the working parts um, worked a little bit and anyway I, I didn't really think uh, anything about it and I, I brought it home with me anyway uh, so, so years later I, I moved off when I went to the states it, it, it came with me and then after that I moved back to England and it, and it came with me in a container with other stuff and then I moved to South Africa <laughs> it came with me and it went up on a wall um, I moved to the Middle East. Actually, I spent uh, a year at UAE working, um, uh, planning oil um, uh, oil routes through Afghanistan. Actually, um, business continuity programs, and so uh, I lived in the UAE in a big fancy house um, for a year, and that was hanging on the wall there. And then, um, and then we uh, that job finished really, and then so I decided to move to France for about three years, and dragged the thing with me there. <laughs> Um, you might wonder why I'm carrying this huge .50 browning. Well I wasn't actually carrying it. I just had a little bit of stuff and I just moved it around, you know, it was part of my, my, my gear. And it used to go up on walls and um finally came back to uh to UK and put it on the wall there and uh and so one day there I was um thirty years later. And I was uh, on Google Earth, and I thought, oh, well, I'll have a little look at Portmore Lock just to see, you know, what's happened to this aircraft. And um, to my amazement, uh, I-, I searched all over. It was gone. I thought, where's-, where's it gone? You know, I mean, I knew roughly where it was. And so I, uh, I started to Google fighter aircraft brought down on Portmore uh, Lock. And uh, I discovered this whole story had enveloped um About five or six years after I left Northern Ireland, um the Ulster Aviation Society, uh which were uh, somehow uh had been born or I don't know, I don't know much about their history, I'm going to find out. Um but um they they got enough they raised enough money to come down and helicopter lift the aircraft out of the water and um and they brought it back to uh to the museum to renovate. And uh there's a guy called Peter Locke who was the pilot, it's a great story, he He wasn't shot down, he was actually had engine failure um, during the war, 1944, I think. He was 19 years old, um, landed in the lake, um, survived, Uh, the Navy came along and took all the radio equipment out, but they weren't interested in the guns and that in those days, so they just left everything there and they took the radio equipment. Um, He went off uh, to the, you know, to continue his war. Um, and so the, the plane sat there this wildcat it's a it's a Grumman mark v wildcat and uh, it sat there in this lake for all those years 40 odd years and um, so I, i'm sitting and so I thought oh my gosh I, i've got to uh i, I, I contacted the museum and uh, i spoke to a guy called ray who's the head head honcho there and uh, i basically asked him about it, and he told me about it, and i said look i said i, I think I've got one of the, well i pretty certain I got one of the guns and he was absolutely overjoyed because um, all the guns had gone they're all missing there's there were O's on that uh, on that on that aircraft and then someone nicked them over the years and they haven't got one of them and um I said would you like it back you know and uh, he sort of nearly took my hand off um and but then I told him he said he said great he said when was it decom- decommissioned <laughs> you know and I went, what's that mean? You know, and well, I wasn't that thick, but but I meant, you know, no, you know, and he went, oh my God. And he, he said, so you've taken it all around the world with you um, without being officially decommissioned. And, you know, yeah. And uh, so I've avoided uh, long-term prison sentences in various countries around the world. So I'm now actually classified as a heavy machine gun uh, weapons smuggler. Um, so uh, immediately put me in touch with a, an organization that um, uh, decommissioned uh, uh, weapons and, um, and I, 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 I've, uh, I got it decommissioned. And, um, but because of the um, coronavirus, I, I only just picked it up from, um, from this place yesterday. And uh, my plan is to take it to the Ulster Aviation Society Museum in Belfast, um, and, and hand it back, or hand it to them, but hand it back to the aircraft. Sadly, the pilot, Peter Locke, um, died in, two years ago, or two, three years ago, um, um, but he was reunited with his aircraft. And I, I, on my website, uh, I think I put a clip for, uh, from a, a, a news uh, broadcast about um, about Peter uh, uh, and the aircraft. You should take a look at it, it's quite interesting. I just thought that was an interesting little story, you know, um and hopefully um in the next few months um it will be reunited
0: with its aircraft and uh there'll be a happy ending. And so let me just get this straight. Sorry, don't uh, Duncan I'm trying to do about six things at once here, so get on Facebook, which is one of them. Um so this wildcat what did who which country manufactures that? So did it's you? a it's an American
1: um aircraft. Um, there's only three left, apparently, uh, uh, in the world. Two of them are in the States. Um, the Americans sent a bunch of them over to the Navy, the, U- uh, the Royal Navy, and, uh, and that was one of them, which um, young Peter Wolf uh, Locke, um, sorry, ditched in the Ogin for, um, for his worth. Course, i'm sure he got a good ticking off for that and unless he had a good excuse but um yeah so it's a it's a it's an american fighter uh grumman wildcat mark five three left in the world and this one's in the ulster aviation society museum in belfast um you can just google it and look it up and they're actually open um and it looks a really cool museum i I actually haven't been back to Belfast since the days I used to work there um, um, in, in, in the old days. So um, I'm looking forward to uh, going back there, uh, as long as I, as long as there's no one who's upset about me going back there. <laughs> um, obviously, I won't tell anyone until I've come back. But uh, there you go.
0: <laughs> My gosh! And this, so this Peter Locke was a, a, Brit, a British Navy pilot. I believe so. Yeah. Yeah, and did you say he's died? He's died now. Yeah,
1: he died in 2017, um, but he did get, he did get to go to the museum and reunite with um, his plane, and in fact, I think he even climbed into it. Wow. Um, they, they, it's all, it's a volunteer uh, uh, society, so uh, all the work's done on planes, and they've got loads of planes, and so it's a slow process. I understand they're going to fit the right wing uh, uh, this year, hopefully. Uh, But it's nearly all back together. But uh, they're looking forward to sticking this old machine gun back inside it. Uh, So it will be um, very sweet. Uh, I was embarrassed about taking it at first until the old boy running it said, well, actually, you know what? We haven't got any of them. And if you hadn't taken it uh, from the plane kept hold of it for the last years. <laughs> he said we probably wouldn't have
0: seen that one so well done so so i gave myself a slap on the back in the end yeah so it it, it all came good in the end what so excuse my ignorance duncan a, a lock my understanding is they 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 go into the sea right no no you've j- got, is- um you've got inland locks and sea locks Ah, okay. I just was—I was going to ask you if it went to the sea. Was it brackish water or something? But this was, this was. Well, tr- unless
1: you believe the old, you know, theory that Loch Ness, which is actually a landlocked lock, has got a tunnel going to the sea where Nessie comes in uh. and out of. <laughs> but um, no, uh, a lock is just a lake. Um, so, uh, and a lake is traditionally a, a landlocked piece of water. But
0: um, so I'm guessing that preserved the, the locks.
1: The locks is it's, it's it, that's an interesting one because I don't think we have any sea lakes whereas in Ireland and uh, but Scotland they have sea locks, you know Gairlock, for instance is um, it's a it's it's a lock but it, it's got a sea entrance.
0: Yeah. What what did you think of that? Because um, I think it was an SAS trooper, wasn't it? That he was very senior as well, or he certainly had some time under his belt, and he was. I don't know how he was reported, but he had a pistol he'd brought back from a conflict. And do you remember they threw the book at yeah. him? Yeah. It's um, Do you know what? A, a, a lot of people did
1: that because it was so easy. Um, you know, when I first arrived in Baghdad, it was, the war was just, the war was still on and it was just, I'm um, 2003, you know, and the fire, the shooting was still going on in the streets, but, there was gear everywhere. There were weapons everywhere. And uh, I mean, and, and then when it all calmed down and we were starting to put teams together, I could buy an AK-47 for $23. Um, I remember this Japanese uh, journalist. Uh, I don't know what he was thinking, but he found a grenade in the street and decided um, to take it home as a souvenir. Um, for me, I don't know. It was a, that was certainly a step too far because um, he 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 left Iraq in those days. About the only way you could get in and out of Iraq, there were there was a UN type flight that came into Baghdad, but you had to you had to really have some good contacts to, to get on it. I only got on it a couple of times, but most of the time you you drove out on the M, I think it was the M10 um, to the Arman border, and you drove through bandit country. Um, and uh, he, 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 he'd spent a couple of months in Baghdad and then he, he took, um, he got a taxi. Know, this guy was crazy all around. He took a taxi uh, to the Amman border. And of course, there's a checkpoint there. And um, he put his bag through the big x-ray machine. And of course, one of the guys saw this blip, you know, and reached inside and pulled it out and pulled the pin out. And the grenade went off and killed him. And uh, I don't know how long that Japanese uh, journalist spent in jail, but if he's still there, I would not be too surprised. But there was a lot of people who took a lot of weapons out of that country, yeah.
0: My gosh, why is it people, when they get handed a weapon of any sort, why is it some people will, will just automatically, ah, uh, I, we'll, I guess we'll never know. Oh, I, I,
1: there are so many stories. I mean, a lot of, so many stories. When you hear about people getting caught by booby traps, they weren't booby traps at all. You know, um, you know, they were just oh, oh. There's a there's a, a shell or something, and they go ahead and pick it up. You know, and and um, they do something. It goes off. Um, yeah. Um, I remember someone I someone I knew met uh, found uh, one of the gold plated. Um, a K forty sevens belonging to Saddam's um, son one of his sons. Uh, and I understand a journalist tried to get that out. But that's that was worthwhile. I mean it was worth quite a lot of money, gold plated A K forty seven. So, you know. I think I, I might have gone for that.
0: I thought the uh I thought the Corps had one. Pretty sure they pretty sure they did. Um yeah, that's a bit of a what, what was more
1: fun was all the money that was in. Uh,
0: did I did I talk about the money last? I, I did
1: talk a bit about the money, but uh, yeah, but all the money that was uh, that was over there. But it was yeah, it was so much gear uh, just lying around. It, you imagine a city like Baghdad; it, it was quite wealthy, you know. And uh, um, suddenly, there's no police, there's no law and order, and and everything is bombed. There's no alarm bells. There's no electricity. There's no door fronts. You know, so the first people arriving in the city, you know, just especially Westerners and, and security people uh, and bootnecks and paras and SAS and SPS bloke, all with their adjustable wrenches, they didn't really need them, you know, they just needed kit <laughs> bags to put all the gear in, you know.
0: Yeah, my buddy was a was an engineer and he he was on that approach into Baghdad and they found a, I think it was a Rolex shop and the safe was buried in the rubble. So he went back to his truck to get some um, plastic explosive. <laughs> and he said by the time he'd got back to this safe, somebody had nicked it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Well, should we take some questions, Duncan? There's probably going to be a load of... Um... Someone wanted to know a bit about watches as well, actually. Oh, I'm just sorry, I was, only because I saw it come up. Um, i tell you what I'm just going to do while you... While you get to grips with that I I promised uh, the people on my Facebook so that's facebook.com forward slash Chris Thrall is my Facebook page um, I was in a video earlier and I posted it and I asked if they could guess which was me it was a very short clip of me and I was actually in uniform so I don't know how these people picked that um, but I said I'd read out the people that that got the time frame or the time stamp right so that was Ceci Celia Marie Stevenson, four minutes and one second. I haven't checked this, so I'm just taking your word for it. Mick O'Brien, well done, Mick. Carolyn, very, very old friend of mine. uh, And Sean, there you go. And and Mercedes, well done, Mercedes. There we
1: go.
0: Yes, did you find the question?
1: Yeah, what it was was uh, a couple of of people were asking about... um, uh, watches uh, uh sbs watches um yeah quite a sad story for me really because um, in my day when i joined up you still got issued the uh, uh, rolex oysters and um
0: he says showing sure off. yeah we, i wish
1: um and i um i i got issued this when i first joined when i first got my uh badged uh, i got this oyster um rolex didn't think anything of it you know i really did uh, I just technical stuff like that i really i'd heard of Rolex because bond apparently had one you know uh, or, or, or something like that but uh, but that was it really um and th- and then when i um when i left uh uh when i uh, went off on, a, on a, to the funny farm sort of uh, for a, a few years i i could have kept it but i just handed it in because i thought well the Rolex Kind of gives you away a bit, you know. It's a bit flash, and I and I could have kept it. Someone said, "Well, why don't you just keep it?" And I went, "Well, why?" I, I, I'll just hand it in, and when I come back, I'll I'll get it back, right? Or get something back. And and someone's okay. So I handed it into the store. This Rolex, which which no one cared about, whether I handed it on or not. And when I came back two years later. Um, and re-, re rejoined the squadron, they gave me th- this thing. This it's a CWC watch, and they weren't doing the Rolex anymore. I don't know if you can sort of see that, but anyway, that's what they gave me. And I thought, Oh, okay, oh, fine, that's great, you know. And I, and I kept this. And um, um, years later, when I left, uh, uh you know, I was, I was uh, um, doing my Duncan Talk and the writing thing, I got contacted by this uh, watch specialist who. Uh, and he said have you got your rolex watch and i couldn't remember at that time whether <laughs> i'd forgotten that i handed it in and i said i don't know i think i've got a watch somewhere he says if you've got it and you, and it and it's a duncan falconer one he said they're going for about 100 130,000 pounds he said i'll give you 150,000 for yours if if you you know if you can find even a picture of it i went yeah all right mate and then sprinted into my <laughs> Tore down several cupboards looking and found this piece of rubbish. This <laughs> I got back to him and I said I've got I've got me CWC's as I'll give you I'll give you 400 quid for it. Um anyway, so yeah, sad story. I, if only I'd just saved that uh, that Rolex, I could have taken a few years off. Uh, <laughs> but I didn't. Do you remember was it a submar was it a submariner? Yeah, something like that. I've got a um, in um, what the, the lad that I joined fourteen in with. I think I call him Arthur in uh, in first interaction. He was smart enough to keep his Rolex, and um, but he's got a funny story. He, we both went off to Africa. Um, I, I did a, a bit of a dive job in um, um, capping wellheads off the coast of Nigeria for about three months. Down few hundred feet in um, Hammerhead Breeding Ground, by the way, which they didn't tell me until I was actually on the bottom in my boiler suit one night, capping a wellhead. And um, he'd he been sent to Port Hartcore, and he was um, servicing um, a single boy morning, they call it an SBM, um, beneath, beneath it, where it it, 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 it touches the, the bed. And um, when he finished the dive job, he came back ashore, and he'd lost his... Rolex. It would come off, it broke, the strap had broken and he'd lost it. And, um, and then he discovered how valuable they were. So he was absolutely gutted. And a year later, he went um, back on the same SBM, went down to the job and found it, which is extraordinary. <laughs> and and it, 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 he, it wasn't working and he shook it and, and it started to work. So he immediately wrote to Rolex. <laughs> because he'd seen this ad um apparently some innovative submariner on a on a submarine doing a a sneaky beaky job in um against the ruskies up in momance in the day when the british um the british had these o-class submarines which were diesel and the americans had got rid of all their diesel and they'd all moved upgraded to um uh, at nuclear subs, um, as as they as you would, and when you've got lots of dosh, uh, but the only the, the thing they discovered was that the, the diesels were actually perfect spy subs because um, they didn't leave a trace, a nuclear trace, and and they could run pretty silent. So the um, the Americans started asking the British to do all their sort of sneaky beaky work off off the Russian coast, up in the north uh, when the ice was in, and um, so quite often the um, the, the British submarines uh, one of the lads in the SBS um, a good bait of mine his brother was a submariner and um, he'd disappear for three or four months and come back and you'd see him go where have, you, where have you been Stu? and he'd go can't tell you he says but it was bloody freezing you know? <laughs> and um, we were all together we all kind of knew where he had go anyway one of the submariners had um, decided to tie a Rolex around the periscope on one of these three-month trips, and um, when they came back, he 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 got out of the submarine, and there it was. And so he, he wrote a letter to Rolex. Apparently, Rolex—I don't know how true it is—you know, urban legend—but sent him some money and for the rights to use the, the story.
0: <laughs>
1: so, um, so my uh, my friend uh, Arthur Tony, his real name is, um, wrote off to Rolex about his Nigeria story, but. Uh, don't think Rolex were interested enough to give him anything for it. But, you know, great watches, Rolexes, i tell you.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I I was in a pub when I was about 17, and I didn't even know anything. I didn't really know much about fashion back then, and my buddy grabbed the landlord and said, show Chris your watch, and he showed me one of these. It's a Rolex Sea-Dweller, right? And I'm looking at this watch, and just the sheer quality for anyone that's not seen one that it just even the back you can I I don't think you can see it really well but it's all really nicely engraved and on the side I don't know how functional this is I've heard no no diver worth his salt would would ever wear one but on the side there there's a helium escape valve and that's for apparently when you go down deep I don't know why they call it a helium escape valve, but it it lets that gas out and stops the watch exploding.
1: Hmm. But, you know um, you're probably going to get mugged within an hour at the end of this broadcast, Chris.
0: <laughs> well, the thing was, I started walking past the Rolex shop in my in my town centre, and I just would look for ages at this at this watch, and it was nothing to do with the 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 price, or it was just. I'd never seen anything such quality. And when I got back from Northern Ireland, I just walked in the shop and I said, uh, can I have a look at the, um, Submariner? And they showed me the, the cheaper Submariner. I went out of the shop, I came and I said, can I have a look at the Sea-Dweller? And the woman in there, so a bit kind of reticent showed me the Sea-Dweller. I went out, I came back in again. I said, can I see the Sea-Dweller again? She, and she looked at me and she actually said, but I've already showed it to you once. <laughs> right. I'm there with my Ron Hill Tracksters and a sweatshirt on. And I said yes, but I'd like to buy it please. Oh sir, have a seat please. Uh, can we get you a cup of coffee? <laughs> and um my f- very first Rolex I lost the the, the the catches on them aren't very good. This clip this safety catch here gets really loose and I lost it uh swimming one day. Um But I think, I I think I got another one on the insurance and I wore that in Hong Kong. And when I was down and out in Hong Kong, I just walked into a pawn shop and sold it. And then about, I don't know how many years later, I was in Raffles Hotel in Singapore and I was walking along and I saw they had a Rolex shop and I looked in the window and lo and behold, there's my watch, can we say? And I thought, Right, I'm getting it back. <laughs> Not I don't mean it was like the watch that I'd hocked, it was the same model. So I just got my credit card out and said, Right, yeah, I'll have that one. And the funny thing was, when I bought one at nineteen, I couldn't stop looking at it. It was every five minutes it was check <laughs> checking this watch. I mean it cost it cost over a thousand pound then. Um when I bought it the second time, it all that kind of um romanticism had just gone it it was just i put it on my wrist and i didn't even look at it i still i still don't um you know i, I actually mostly wear this one <laughs> the Casio g-shock that's 50 quid that's an extortionate amount of money now and as far as i'm concerned that's a much better watch so i can
1: give you one piece of advice about your rolex uh chris go on If you ever notice the helium valve open, get out of there. You're in the wrong location.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I'll start um, talking like a pig or something. (laughs) Right, Duncan, there's a question here. Um, Folks, I think we'll go on for another 10 minutes. I'm sorry about the slow start. I want to catch my little boy because I haven't seen him for three days before he goes to bed. Um so let's take a few more questions s a s r duncan have you heard of that i i haven't s a s reserves? s s r r kush kush is asking duncan did you do much training with the s a s r around 1980 to 93 is that s a s reserve maybe Uh, i don't know what the s a s r is um no
1: there's the s r r which is the Special Reconnaissance Regiment.
0: But um, but no, I I don't know who they are. I've never heard of them. Okay, moving swiftly on. Um, What did the old SBS... This is from Favourite Exercise. Favourite Exercise Push-Ups. Interesting name. What did the old SBS selection course consist of and why did they switch from a separate course to the SAS one? I guess they mean the Joint the joint selection that they do now? Um,
1: Well, to tell you what the SBS selection course, I mean, that's quite a long answer. And all I can say is get the book. (laughs) There's a lot, um, there's a lot of the selection in the book, but it's it's three months or so. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it. there's a lot of phases in it and it would take me more than 10 minutes to explain. Um, I wasn't around when they um, combined the selection course, but, um, but it made a lot of sense, if you think about it, um, uh, pooling resources. Um, and there was always a, there's always a thinking at some stage that the SAS and the SBS might have combined. Um, who knows how true that was? We certainly weren't privy to that sort of information. Um, the rumours coming down uh, from above were varied over a long, many, many years from we were definitely going to amalgamate, we were going to relocate, we were going to have a joint camp, we were going to have a separate camp, but we were all going to be under the same badge. Um, and then out of the blue one day, um, the SBS got its own cat badge after years of only uh, uh, ever using the Royal Marines bag. Um I don't know if it was a financial um, situation. I mean, it made a lot of sense um, combining the uh, selection courses. But the only um, difference is was that um, um, SBS needed to have a maritime uh, capability, which was um, predominantly um, subsurface, um, you know, diving, and so um, and the SAS really didn't need to. They had a boat troop, which um, which they didn't really use a great deal, and so um, so when SBS and SAS guys, Marines, Paras, etc., whatever. Joined to do their selection, um, those that uh, once they completed the SAS stage, you were SAS badged, and then those who were, wanted to do, um, co- who had to continue on to join the SBS, then um, went to pool and uh, um, and uh, did um, diving and uh, sea navigation and uh, and a bit of uh, canteras and maritime counterterrorism, which which led to the. You know the old thing well you can if you fail the sbs course you can always join the sas <laughs> it's a bit of a dig to the sas obviously there's you can't
0: miss an opportunity but um <laughs> yeah um so friends thank you all for w- watching could you like and subscribe i just thought i should ask you that if you could um hit the like button that that would be very kind of you question here Duncan is um, from Lakeis Strikes or Lachis Strikes. Awesome books, Duncan. Why was Coke, bracket Snellson the most respected man within the service at the time? Um, well, uh, you know, you, you say that uh,
1: about people. I suppose uh, uh, Coke was a, a bit of a legend, um, uh, apart from being really a first rate sort of uh, guy he um, he was inc- he was incredibly dedicated he was handsome he was incredibly fit super fit um, he led by example um, he was very mellow he was very calm and cool and I think everyone suspected that he was probably around about the best operator that we had in the, he was my boss. Um, when I, when I, um, after about four years, I I joined his team and it was fantastic to have him as a boss, but, um, and then there's the legend of, you know, uh, one of the last big, uh, jobs of photographing underneath Russian frigates off uh, Gibraltar in this particular case. Um, Coke was, um, selected to do the job, uh, that in itself will, uh, would have been a massive indicator as to um, how he was rated, um, not just by the SBS because that job would have come down from London, it would have been big. You know, you don't just, I mean, I guarantee you that when the concept came, the first the first answer was no, we're not going to do that job, we're not going to risk it. Um, and then, um, many jobs are operator quality based because a lot of jobs, um, to powers that be London, Downing Street might just turn around and go, no, we're not going to risk that. And then, and so the military has got to sell it to the ministers and say, because as you know, throughout history, the military has not had a hundred percent success rate. Um, you know, there's been a lot of cock ups. And so you literally, just like selling a product, going to sell a new pair of tights, you're know, you going to go into the ministers and sell them that you can do this job. And one of the things that they want to know, okay, who's going to do it? Who's going to do this job? It's down to one person. And Coke's name was brought up and said, this is the man who's going to do the job. And whoever was selling it uh, did a great sell. And whoever was buying it looked at Coke and went, Okay, we'll go with him. So that says a huge amount, and, and any operator out there who's ever been selected to do a great job, you know, a lot of the guys who did um, did the Iranian embassy, you know, they got to take they got to take a lot of credit because people don't realize that you weren't just selling the concept; you were selling the men who did the job, and so you didn't just sell the idea and the plan. It's not enough. Who's going to execute it? And are they any good is look at how many jobs have taken place around the world by special forces and have been screwed up not always the planning the people that you send in but crap You know, couldn't do it so coke went in and um he went by himself dropped off and uh and swam beneath the sub when the last person who did that we never saw him again mind you he's probably you know moved to russia he was probably a spy living in russia now with his family um I think I'm talking about, but um, but he was never seen again. And so it's no small thing, you know? And um, and so Coke swam beneath this Russian vessel and took photographs and it was 100% success, um, which again was massive for the SBS because not only did they sell the job and sell Coke, they succeeded. So Coke's, if Coke's rating was high before the job enough for the ministers in london to say okay you can do it imagine how um how high their rating was when they succeeded and and because of coke so that's got to put coke into pole position
0: yeah i was um chatting to robin horsfall the other day and he's his podcast is going to go out tomorrow night for anyone that's interested i think eight o'clock tomorrow night fascinating chat we had but um with all that professionalism and all that training and all that gear you still think like it would have been a it would have really added to a good outcome if once those windows started smashing in and the flashbangs were going off those terrorists <laughs> just panicked and went ah oh! do you know what I'm saying i mean there's we don't know because obviously none of us were there um we back
1: to the Iranian embassy yeah yeah, even so, I mean, they had to go. Um, Margaret made it clear that none of them were going to survive, and um, and that's the message that had to be sent. So, it doesn't matter if they did put their hands up.
0: No, what I mean is, is um, yeah, I mean, it could it could have gone horribly wrong, couldn't it? I mean, yeah, they all could have. I mean, it was um, yeah, it was a a great a great outcome. Um,
1: there's so many jobs you know i i was involved in that. and you, you look back and you go you just needed one little thing to go wrong sometimes um you remember what i said before that there are there are three things that hold up an operation there's the, the people doing them there's the procedures and then there's the equipment and um we we put a lot of reliance on equipment um but uh, you know it's it's so um it's so many operations have fallen over just because of a thread of a nut has given way, you know. It's crazy.
0: Mm. Um, da, 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 just looking down, down, we'll take one more question, friends. And, um, massive thank you to Andrew for the donation, M- really appreciate it, Andrew. He says, Congratulations on the 40k subs, Chris. Well, congratulations, everybody. Um, it's been a lot of hard work on many people's behalf. Brooke there, Tony moderating the chat, Marty obviously my producer. Um, so uh, yeah, massive thank you to everybody. Not least of which the subs of course. Um, how often, this is from Favorite Exercise again, sorry I've, I've, I'm being a bit um, nepotistic here if that's the word. How often did you work with US Frogman? And what's your view of them in terms of efficiency, capability, training, selection, and structure?
1: Right. So that's a long story. Um, I had the pleasure of working quite a lot with, uh, uh, you're talking about Navy SEALs. It's a great organization, uh, great bunch of blokes. Um, they changed a huge amount in the period I knew them. When, uh, when I first, uh, you know, militaries and organisations are are designed by their conflicts, by their uh, objectives, and um, and so the Navy SEALs went through a huge change from the days when, you know, they were uh, when they were formed. They were the UDT underwater demolition team, um, and they were just big, powerful guys. And then you you took you look at um, I don't know much about what happened to them uh, during um, the um, Vietnam War, but the American concept of operations was completely different from the UK, and it worked for them. Um, um, so the guys uh, were bigger, more muscular. Um, they did short-term ops generally, so they didn't carry a great deal in the field. Um, and so when uh, when they we started working together, the SBS and the Navy SEALs, we we weren't compatible at all uh, because Uh, First of all, we were poor, (laughs) the Americans were rich, Um, and they they had all the great gear. Um, uh, But it was always funny that when the Americans came to work with us, they came with all their gear. When the Brits, when the SBS went to work with the Americans, the word was carry as little as possible so that you can fill your bags with stuff, you know, (laughs) because they, they were very generous, the Americans. Um, as far as uh, 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 the, the structure, I mean, so th- we were completely different. The SBS were very much, and the SAS were very much into long-term ops. We, we, you, you look at the um, the desert rats, you know, the uh, sort of the, the SAS in the in the Second World War. I mean, you know, you left camp with your gear, you came back weeks maybe months later and that was still a concept it was very much a british concept of warfare and special forces you went behind enemy lines you resupplied you lived off the land um the american concept was was based on their strategy and and so they punched hard hit hard didn't reach out so far behind enemy lines uh with manpower um a lot of standing ops you know um etc ambushes and stuff like that but then coming back into um, to the to the main group and so that's how they developed and so when we first started working together we were very diverse so the answer to this question is actually quite a long one um and I'm, and, I'm, and we don't really have the time to go through it but um yeah i, I, I really made some great friends uh, in the navy seals we 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 swapped over we would send a sergeant and an officer to them for two years and they'd reciprocate and so we got to know each other quite well we'd spend quite a bit of time working with them in the states and they'd come over and freeze their asses off in the uk we'd dive with them in off off the coast of florida you know and they then we'd take them for a dive off the coast of Scotland or Norway in a storm, um, and um, they, they must have thought we were taking the piss, but this is this is the environment that we had in our backyard, you know, um, but yeah, great blokes, uh, but it, it's a huge story in itself, the whole story of the seals and the SBS. It's a great one as well, and maybe worth one day someone should put a book together of that story because uh, because it was a fun one. Um, yeah, but, but good bunch of lads. Um, and it was lovely to watch them evolve. From my point of view, uh, the only summary I'd like to say is that they ended up evolving in our direction. So I think there's a credit there, great organization, but they they did see that the way that the Brits conducted warfare was the future. They must have done because when I started working with them, they were not the same organization um uh, as they were when I finished working with them, and they looked like a hell of a lot more like an sas and SBS unit than they did um when I first started working with them. so there's the clue if you like, um that they ended up uh, you know following if you like um in, in in our sort of basic concept.
0: What about um in terms of equipment do they, have they got sort of unlimited? budget is that noticeable with the gear that they use
1: yeah and that was a great story as well the brits have always been broke look you know when they the, the, the navy seals couldn't believe that an sbs bloke if you want to get new set of batteries for your torch you had to go into the store and we had a storeman who used to put your battery on a bulb and if the bulb glowed even a little bit you couldn't change the battery now if you said that to an American, he'd look at you, a Navy SEAL bloke, and he'd go, you, 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 we know you're not serious. Because if you were in uh, Norfolk, Virginia, and you wanted a battery, you'd go down to the store and come back with a case of them, you know. They're over there, help yourself, you know. So they have this sort of concept. They were. Unlimited in, in in lots of the stuff that they they had. I mean, we'd get fined or get hammered if we lost a piece of equipment. But I went on an exercise with SEAL Team Four in Guam, and SEAL Team Four and One were the real poor cousins. That SEAL Team Two and Six were the were the great guys. You know, they were the really great organizations, um, and they had a different structure. If you joined SEAL Team Four or One in in my day, you probably didn't work with Two or Six. Um, and I went off on an exercise with SEAL Team 4. And when we got to the endex after three days later, we were walking out to the pickup point about 20 clicks. They dumped all their gear so they wouldn't have to carry it. Sleeping bags, <laughs> mess tins, rations. So guess who was carrying all that shit when we came back out of the field? All the Brits were just picking this stuff up. And I, one of the lads, he was—he had about a hundred pounds on his back by the time we made it to the pickup. Boy, one of the Brits, he was picking up everything. The Americans. its just—it's just we were different animals. They had—they uh, had everything, and also, um, you know, they had. We, if we wanted something, we had to make it. My pooches, I stitched up myself in the early days. Designed them all myself. You know, we had cell makers. You, one of your favorite pieces of kit was the cellmaker. Americans sitting there looking at me, making a pooch, who just thought I was a moron, you know. Um, why don't you just go down to the store and get one? So the Brits had this concept where it, if you didn't have it, you made it. But there was something else though going on here. A lot of the stuff that we were coming up with, they weren't on the shelf. If you, wanted to, um, if you wanted to come up with an idea of climbing onto a ship back in the 70s, you didn't go down to the climb onto the ship shop and say, can I have the latest equipment you have for climbing onto ships, please? Because there wasn't any place like that. You made it. And uh, the seals, because they didn't have that pedigree of having to make stuff because they were rich compared, so they they didn't have that concept. So if it wasn't, if you couldn't buy it, if there wasn't a company making it, you didn't have it in the seals. Uh, and this was a unique and interesting relationship that they benefited from and we benefit from. We had this attitude of like, well, we had to make everything we needed. And the Americans had this attitude. Well, if we can't buy it, let's get a company to invent it and then we'll buy it off them. You know, it, it's a bit simplistic, but it, it, it's generally how it was. You know,
0: we, we were poor. We were the poor cousins and they were the rich buggers. Um, so- Who would win in a fight between a SAS Trooper, SBS Frogman, Navy SEAL, or a Royal Marines Lance Corporal? If it was Rocky Rowe from 4-2 Commando,
1: um, it would be Rocky Rowe. Uh, If there's any bootlegs out there listening to me, you probably knew Rocky. Rocky, Rocky when I met him, he had 54 professional fights. He only lost two Um, disqualified for beating the bloke up on the ground (laughs) Uh, Rocky killed the first Argentinian in the fall I can't go on about Rocky I've talked about him in my book but um, oh I don't know but I I remember I remember uh, um, having a conversation with an SBS lad two SBS lads who'd um, they got all AWOL it just doesn't. It kind of answers your story, but in a slightly different way because I, I don't know. That's all bullshit, isn't it? It's all you, you you talk to. But the only time I ever got interested in a conversation like that, these two guys went AWOL from Forty Commando because they were bored. A guy called uh, Scotty and um, um, and Dave um, Dubois, great blokes, animals. They were pub clearers. They were notorious that they go back to back in a pub somewhere and just, just you, 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 they would clear it Two mad bootlegs. And they were so bored that they went AWOL and joined the French foreign legion. (laughs) And, um, they did the whole thing. They, they, they went off down and and they joined, they went down into Corsica and they joined and they, um, they ended up on SBS selection (laughs) a year and a half later. And I was, one of the instructors, I was Mr. Nasty. And um, and one evening, sitting there waiting for a helicopter, they were both on the course and they they both passed. They were hard bosses, the pair of them. And um, and I knew something about their past. And I said, okay, Dave, tell us the story of how the hell did you join the French Foreign Legion from the Royal Marines? And what the hell are you doing on an SBS selection course? And they actually told the story and it was a wonderful story. And I'll tell you the really short version, basically, they... They, 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 joined the, they joined the French foreign legion, did the whole selection course, got in and said, this is a load of bollocks and escaped. Their escape from the uh, uh, French Royal legion is hilarious because they got caught and then escaped again and then came back to England, did 80 days in Colchester, went back to Forty Commando and then opted to join the SBS and they right. both turned up on selection, both passed and had great careers um both characters um but uh, very funny stories and they said to, i said and i said to them so bunch of bootnecks bunch of french foreign legioners because these two guys were scrappers and they had horrendous fights in the foreign legion and they said there's monsters some horrible bastards in the foreign legion and they were both fighters and they said we met our match a couple of times you know and um <laughs> i said so i said so um a commando and the equivalent of French Foreign Legion, you know, pitted toe to toe. And they said, they said, it's a simple one. He said, if you stripped them all down just to their sort of like shorts and put them into a, uh, onto a football field, he said, the Legionnaires would probably beat the, <laughs> beat the hell out of the Marines. He said, but put them with the gear, he said, you know, uh, rifles, um, company uh, sort of strategies. He said, the Marines are trash all over them.
0: The
1: French Foreign Legion. <laughs> so that was that summary.
0: Yes. So what I took out of that is the uh, out of all the elite forces, it's your Royal Marines La- Lance Corporal is the toughest. Rocky, <laughs> 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 <with you, yeah. laughs> we're not allowed to go back on that. um One very quick question, Duncan. Um, Naz, thank you, Naz, for asking. He wants to know when your, uh, the sequel of your memoir is out. Well, I tell you what, good thing you asked, I have
1: just finished um, doing a polish, uh, uh, an update of the first book. For years it's been niggling me. Um, that book actually got published, so did the Beckett Approval, my last novel, got published before it had been copy-edited. And there were some glaring errors in First interaction. One of them was, for instance, the uh, Migs down in uh, the Falklands, when there weren't any Migs, it was Mirages. And that that got all picked up in a in a copy um critique but it was never implemented i've had a lot of criticism over that for the years and it was my mistake because i never went down the falklands and i just wrote me so there's quite a few errors in um in it and also uh, a few stories which i'm allowed to now mention so i've just finished a polish of first interaction it doesn't mean that you, uh, you don't. I mean, if you've got a book, please don't go out. and. I'm not trying to sort of say go and get another one because it's not that much different. There's only a couple of very small stories and I'll tell them on a podcast one day, so there we go. Um, but I just wanted to update and I put a few names of people that I wasn't allowed to mention their names. I can mention them now because they're all dead and gone or whatever and they've allowed me to mention their names. So that's the first thing and that comes out September 3rd. Um, so if you want a typo-free version of um, First Disreaction, um september 3rd uh, i am a th- I am thirty eight thousand words into um first interaction part two and um quite an- enjoying myself a lot because i had so many great adventures and i must say i actually think i had a bit even more exciting adventures as a civvy um but but for completely different reasons in all the war zones i I worked in and all the idiots that I worked with Um, a few revelations about the media. um, um, Not too pretty. uh, Some of them Um, BBC doesn't do very well, for instance. Um, And um, yeah, so I'm plodding on with that and hopefully um, four or five months I might, uh, should see me to the end of
0: it. Excellent. And on that note, um, once again, everybody, Duncan included apologies for all the tech, technology issues earlier fortunately i get the opportunity to edit that out through youtube which is a, a bit of a relief but um it would be great to have you back duncan is what i'm trying to say and we can um try i've try and have a technology um slip up free chat again if if you'd be so kind i'm sure um judging by always
1: the always always a pleasure chris uh, to come on your show uh, yeah. thank you very much for inviting me
0: any oh, uh, uh, anytime, absolutely anytime. and uh, yeah it would be really nice to hear some of your civilian adventures so um, Duncan just stay on the line while I say thank you to our friends at home and play the outro and so thank you to our friends at home thanks for everyone that's put a question in the comments sorry if we didn't get around to answering all of them um, I think it's just great to hear can speak (laughs) about anything so um yeah maybe we'll try and cover some of them next time if you can like and subscribe that will be uh fantastic thank you to brooke who's been doing a great job moderating there well done on the forty thousand subscribers everyone and we will see you next time friends thank you for listening to the bought the t-shirt podcast Please like, subscribe and share. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Username Chris Thrall. Instagram Chris.Thrall. Thank you.